in doing that, I found that surveillance of people in the UFO subject, and by people I mean everything from abductees, contactees, witnesses, authors, lecturers, researchers, the the number of people who were being watched actually far outweighed the number of people who weren't being watched. So it was actually the norm rather than um, oh, wow. something out of the ordinary. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio, Season 1. We're back after our brief hiatus. I want to humbly apologize for missing the last three weeks. But, so is life. Things come up, and the collective brain trust at Benall of America Audio decided to take a step back, collect our breath, take a look forward and then continue onward. And that is where we are today, continuing onward with this week's guest, Nick Redfern, part one of two. Nick Redfern is the author of the new book, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, UFOs and Government Surveillance. That is pretty much what we discussed this week on Banal of America Audio. We talk about what someone has to do to draw the attention of these mysterious surveillance forces and uh, the various forms the surveillance takes. We talk about men in black. We talk about infiltration of UFO groups. We talk about UK computer hackers. We talk about UK ufology versus US ufology and various stories that are detailed in the new book on the trail of the saucer spies. Here's a little bit of background on Nick Redfern for those of you who are unfamiliar with him. Nick Redfern is one of the world's foremost authorities on UFOs. His main area of research centers around determining what has been learned about the UFO subject at an official level in Britain. He has spent hundreds of hours at the Public Record Office in London and has uncovered thousands of pages of previously classified Royal Air Force, Air Ministry, and Ministry of Defense files on UFOs dating from the Second World War. He has written for Military Illustrated, I Spy, Fate, Fortean Times, Phenomena Magazine, and the London Daily Express newspaper. His previous books include A Covert Agenda, The FBI Files, Cosmic Crashes, Strange Secrets, Three Men Seeking Monsters, and Body Snatchers in the Desert. Of course, he's the author of this new book, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was conducted on April 2nd, 2006. Nick Redfern, Part 1 of 2 on Banal of America Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, this week as our guest we have Nick Redfern. He has been researching the UFO phenomenon since 1978 with a concentration in uh, the UK's official knowledge of UFOs. He's written for newspapers and magazines in the UK and is author of numerous books. Let me read them here for you. Three Men Seeking Monsters, Covert Agenda, The British Government's UFO Top Secrets Exposed, Strange Secrets, Real Government Files on the Unknown, Body Snatchers in the Desert, The Horrible Truth at the Heart of the Roswell Story. And his most recent book, and the one we're going to be talking about today, is On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, UFOs, and Government Surveillance. 
Uh, welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks, Tim. Good to be here. Uh, hopefully I got those books, uh, I know they're not in chronological order, probably, but I didn't. No, it doesn't matter, I think it's, uh, it's always good to uh, <laughs> hear mention of them, but I mean, now the order doesn't matter at all. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, well, first of all, why don't you uh, give me a little bit of your background, how you got into studying the UFO phenomenon, um, since you've been, uh, you've been researching it since 1978, so tell me a little bit about your evolution as a researcher. Yeah, well, 78 really was when I first got interested. I mean, in 78, I was only I was only 13 years old, so I wasn't sort of <laughs> running around the country, um, you know, doing investigations. But what happened was that was the year when I did become interested in the subject. And what happened was that my father used to be in the British Royal Air Force, and he worked on radar. And he was stationed on the East Coast um, for all of his military career. There's, um, numerous um, air bases down the east coast of England because, you know, if the Russians ever attacked, that would be the way they would have been coming from. Um, and he was involved in several incidents himself personally in September 1952 when the, the radar operators tracked these weird move, fast-moving objects on the scopes coming across from Europe, across the North Sea and towards the English coast. And even though, you know, the, at first, the first thought at least was that, you know, it has to be the Russians, but then when they, various radar stations up and down the coast were tracking these, the movements of these objects, they realized that they were traveling at fantastic speeds that would, you know, far exceed any aircraft or missiles or, or anything that existed um, in 1952, uh, so 54 years ago. Um, and so aircraft were scrambled to, to try and intercept them and see what they were. And the pilots reported seeing these large glowing lights, and every time they tried to approach them, the objects would fly away at high speed, and then literally come to a standstill, and as the planes approached again, they would sit behind them, almost like playing a game of cat and mouse. Yeah. And what happened um, was that there was no actual answer was ever provided. It was just logged as, as literally being unexplained. And everybody involved in the incident, the pilots, the radar people, ground personnel, anybody who knew about it, they were all told not to talk about it and reminded that they'd signed the British Military's Official Secrets Act, which prevents people talking about you know, what secrecy, if you like, in the military. And my dad didn't say anything until, as I said, I was like 13 or 14, something like that, and he told me then. And that really prompted my interest, you know, when you have sort of a family member who's trained in, in radar and who works for the British Air Force telling you these things. That really got my interest going. And from there, I began you know, delving deeper into reading books and magazines and things like that. And um, then when I was in my sort of late teens, 20s, I began addressing it at a deeper level with filing requests to get government documents released or tracking down you know, old mil military old-timers, people like that. And yeah. I just try to build up the picture of what the, U the UK and the US government knew about the subject. And then you, uh, and then you eventually became, you started writing and stuff like that, right? Well, how, how long, when did you sort of like enter into the field and become, um, you know, like a known nation sort of situation? Well, what happened was that when I left college, um, I, I worked in journalism. I worked on a rock, a rock music magazine in England called Zero, and I did that for a couple of years. And because I got an interest in UFOs as well, and I worked as a journalist um, after the, the rock music magazine, I started doing feature writing for the London Daily Express newspaper and local newspapers in the area where I was living. I tried to, you know, I realized that I had an interest in the subject, of course, UFOs, and working as a journalist, I tried to combine the two. So I began just 
you know, like most people I do, I suppose, just writing for magazines and, and journals on the subject. And then, you know, I often used to say, if people know anything about this story, contact me at this address or this phone number. And, you know, the more articles you tend to do, the more you get booked on a lecture circuit. And when that happens, you get to speak to more people. Yeah. And it just kind of built from there, really, to where... You know, I was getting a lot more accounts from retired people or families of retired people who knew something about the subject. And eventually, you know, it got to the point where I thought, well, I've got enough material here on the, the British government, for example, which was the first book I wrote about, um, to actually do a book-length um, historical look going from the 40s to the present day. And so, yeah, it was, it was like that. It was just like a steady build-up from the early years to, to now, really, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and then um, this book, uh, the most recent book on the Trail of Saucer Spot, that just came out uh, in the last six weeks or so, would you say, about uh, beginning of February or so? Yeah, that's just, just literally been released um, less than two months, so yeah, six weeks or so. And what um, what made you decide to tackle uh, this the aspect of, you know, surveillance on ufologists hmm. as your well, I guess. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's kind of timely with the whole thing recently, you know, the, the National Security Agency and the wiretapping issues. Um, yeah. but, um, it was actually just coincidental that the books come out at this particular same time. I mean, obviously, you know, if you write a book, you, you write it sort of 12, 18 months before it's published. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just purely coincidental that it came out at this time. But one of the things that I found in digging into the UFO subject, um, and this is something that applied to me as well, but was that, you know, when you get speaking to researchers, witnesses, authors, everybody it seemed had a little tale to tell at some point about where something weird had happened, where it suggested, you know, that they were being watched or somebody's phone calls were being monitored or, you know, mail from one particular person would arrive and it looked like the envelopes from this one person always had been opened and resealed or, yeah. you know, the, the room was about files being opened on people. And so what I did, having sort of got all these little fragments of tales, some from England and from the US, what I decided to do was to sort of dig into these fragments deeper and see if I could put a picture together of, of what it implied or what it didn't imply. And in doing that, I found that surveillance of people in the UFO subject, and by people I mean everything from abductees, contactees, witnesses, authors, lecturers, researchers, the the number of people who were being watched actually far outweighed the number of people who weren't being watched. So it was actually the norm rather than um, oh, wow. something out of the ordinary, you know, that people were being monitored. And, you know, the monitoring over the years obviously differed depending on technology. Um, you know, from in the early years, it was just literally agents going out and sitting in and things like that. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, you know, it sort of developed over, as the years went on. And uh, like in the, in the book, I noticed you kind of uh, you kind of alluded to it a little bit here. There seem to be like two types of surveillance going on: um, just covert surveillance, where the person may suspect something, but they don't really know it, and um, a little more overt style, where like uh, the idea maybe is that they want you to know that they're watching you. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like a little psychological tool. I mean, you know, people have said, well, in today's world, you don't, you know. The, the days of hearing clicks on your telephone and, and things like that have long gone. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's, that's just like a Hollywood myth. Um, but people do hear these types of things, and I, I actually suspect that it's been done deliberately to kind of spook people to, 
so they realise, you know, it's like, hey, just to let you know that we're watching you. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it does in some people, you know, some people who might get a little bit nervous about that, it does have that required psychological effect where they might actually back out the subject. That has happened, you know, some people are a little bit fearful or that type of character are the ones who, who that sort of scenario would work on. Um, you know, so for example, here we're clicks, or as I said, you know, males tampered with and, and things like that. Um, it does spook people out. Um, and I think that's possibly done more when, you know, it needs to be taken to the next step. Perhaps somebody's a little bit too close to something, and the, the covert monitoring has then isn't just a case of listening to the person, it's then transferred to, hey, we've got to stop this person. Yeah. So, you know, let's spook them out and see what effect that has. And um, like you did a lot of research into the early, the early, uh, the start of the UFO phenomenon mm. study in America. Um, what uh, what agencies would you say were primarily behind uh, the monitoring of the mm. ufologists, and was there sort of like a chain of command at all in, in who was doing the monitoring? Well, what happened was that the the large scale military and governments. Um, investigations of UFOs in the States began in 47 after um, the sighting by Kenneth Arnold, a pilot who reported seeing these weird objects over Washington State and he said they they flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across a body of water um, and that's where the term flying saucer came from and it was in that immediate period in the summer of 47 that the military began investigating UFOs but the military asked the FBI if the FBI could get involved in tracking down witnesses and interviewing witnesses and doing background checks to see. One of the theories that the, the military was concerned about was whether or not some of these things initially were Russian devices or even if the, the people reporting them, it was some sort of weird Russian plot where they clog reporting channels so, you know, the military would be overwhelmed with fake UFO reports which would, you know, allow a sneak attack or something, which was an ingenious theory, but it just, you know, it turned out not to be true. But because that was the initial fear, the FBI were the prime agency that got involved in investigating witnesses and from the witnesses, you know, when the UFO groups sprang up and books started to be written, it was largely the FBI in the 50s and 60s that were the agency that went out and, you know, monitored these people. But, I mean, in the early 50s onwards, there was intense um, monitoring of people in pretty much the, across the board in the UFO subjects. Um, the early 50s in particular were uh, sort of famed, if you like, for one particular type of person in the UFO field that became known as the contactee. Yeah. Um, these are people who claimed actual face-to-face -face contact with aliens, people like George Adamski and George Van Tassel, and, you know, they said that they'd met these very human-like aliens out in the desert and, you know, even been on board their craft and so on. And, and, I mean, today, 50 years on, some of the story sounds kind of quaint and novel and, frankly, in some respects, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but what was more interesting was the fact that uh, George Adamski, in particular, um, blended his, his UFO research and his writing, if you like, with discussions of politics and economics. And again, the FBI wondered, well, is this guy trying to spread subversive political beliefs, communism and things like this, but yeah. doing it 
like under the radar by doing it in, in a UFO fashion, you know, saying, oh, the aliens just told me this is the type of government they have and it's a wonderful government and, yeah. and we should live the same way. And so the SBI um, literally sent agents out to sit in the audiences at his lectures, at George Van Tassel's lectures and, and you know, make huge amounts of notes, you know, that just take off, I guess, the black suit and black tie and just go in the, you know, open neck shirt or t-shirt and sit in the audience like a, a normal member of the public. Um, but then they would file these reports with headquarters um, talking about, you know, what this, these people were saying, who they were saying it to, how many people were, scribe, were subscribing to their magazines, um, who was listening and taking it seriously. And George Adamski's file runs to just under 100 pages. George Van Tassel's is about 300 pages, a huge file. Wow. Um, and so these files, I should stress, you know, this isn't something we've just been told. These files have actually been declassified through the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and anyone now can write to the FBI and get hold of George Adamski's and George Van Tassel's FBI file. Um, and as I said, he, I mean, he shows all sorts of things. One of the little-known facts that they didn't, the people themselves didn't really talk about to any great extent at the time is that the FBI actually visited the homes of both George Adamski and George Van Tassel and grilled them quite closely um, all about their alleged experiences and um, again th those reports are in the files which which talk about how you know that a pair of agents like uh, literally like a Mulder and Scully scenario yeah. would go out sit in you know the guy's home have a cup of coffee with him and say you know tell us all about your UFO experiences and you know the, the guys would be quite happy to do it I suppose if somebody came visiting um, and so this was really the way things took off in the early 50s um, and it was, as I said, it was the FBI that was doing the investigations as such but they would share their information with the, the Air Force investigation projects at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base like Project Sign and Project Blue Book. Yeah. Um, now of course there have been rumours about sort of far more covert agencies so uh, you're also doing research and investigation so it wouldn't surprise me if you know, some of those agencies got the reports as well, um, but primarily we know for definite that it was the FBI sharing information with the Air Force and the two kind of working in tandem together. And do you think, um, now we all know about how like the Air Force is saying now they don't investigate UFOs because they closed down Blue Book um, in the 70s or late 60s. Um, and, and so do you think, uh, so nowadays when people talk about uh, like uh, government interference or harassment or surveillance um, and obviously the the Air Force isn't like uh, out there doing it. Do you think the FBI is still the ones in charge or has it moved on to a different agency you think like the yeah. CIA or the NSA or something? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I mean if you look at the, the Air Force's statements when they closed Project Blue Book down in 69, what that actually related to was the Air Force, literally just the Air Force stopping its um, Project Blue Book investigation, but if you look at documents that have surfaced since then, through, again through the Freedom of Information Act, the Air Force documents actually state that even if, even though Project Blue Book had closed down, if any quote unidentified objects came into U.S. airspace, they would be investigated by the Air Force. So that still left, leaves the door open for events that, you know, they're, what they're actually saying is they're not investigating every light in the sky that you know, enters the chain of command three weeks or a month down the line. Yeah. But something that's sort of tracked on radar where the pilots see something and, you know, it remains unresolved, those cases are looked at. But 
you know, I think today with advances in technology that a lot of surveillance is, is electronic surveillance, um, you know, whether it's wiretapping or email surveillance, you know, which is quite easy to do, um, you know, in, in terms of, for example, most people in today's world obviously keep in touch by email. Yeah. Um, you know, one researcher writes to another telling him or her the latest results of what the person they interviewed last weekend, if you like, yeah. and it's all laid out in an email, well, you know, it becomes very, very easy just to get into that person's system or even just, you know, while the, the email's being transferred through cyberspace, just intercept it, which <clears throat> you know, numerous agencies like the NSA and its British equivalent, which is called Government Communications Headquarters, do that quite routinely. Um, so, you know, I, I think it is quite true that it's, it's to, in today's world, it's these type of agencies that are probably more involved rather than, you know, in previous years of having guys having to sort of physically drive to somebody's house and, you know, install a wiretap outside and, yeah. you know, dress up as guys from the local phone company <laughs> or something, which, you know, may still happen. It just doesn't need to, to any great extent, uh, you know, in today's world. So. Um, and at what level do you think it, uh, somebody has to get to to... Uh to like uh, attract the attention of of the folks who are interested in finding out about the UFO yeah. community, like is there? It's at some point you start making too much noise, and then they're like, they notice you. Mm. I think it's actually a combination of things, Tim. What it is, there is a, there's definitely that. But you know, for example, George Adamski and George Van Tassel were being watched not purely just because of what they were saying, but because Adamski's book. Um, the flying saucers have landed. Its first initial printing in '53 sold 125,000 copies. Oh wow! So, you know, he, was, he had a huge audience, and he was actually saying, he, I mean, he, he, he made no bones about it. He came out and said, you know, the aliens that are visiting us are communists, and you know, they have a wonderful lifestyle. So, you know, when he's, he's spouting things like that to 125,000 people, yeah. and he becomes a major national security issue, which he did. Um, in the eyes of the FBI, at least. And so I think it's a combination of things that attracts attention. One is when you get to that sort of sheer scale and you're talking about the subject. And I think the other thing is that, you know, you can have actually attracted no official attention, but you may have come across a case where the case itself affects national security. Yeah. Um, you know, for example, there might be a case, this is just hypothetical, but there could be a case from the 1950s that no one's ever uncovered the significance of. One person stumbles on it and finds out there's a huge government secret surrounding it. Yeah. That person may have written practically nothing and be completely unknown in the UFO subject, but because they've hit on an official secret, then, you know, they become perhaps a subject of intense monitoring that would go far beyond somebody who's been in the subject 40 years but who hasn't uncovered something that significant. So um, I think it's a combination of things like that. It depends on the case that a person's looking into, um, you know, how sensitive that incident is, how deeply it needed to be covered up in the, originally. Um, and I think also, well, I know for a fact one of the areas that government agencies um, watch people for is when you begin to, you know, try and track down retired military people, um, you know, get roster lists of all the people that worked at this particular Air Force base in, say, 1961, you know, and you phone them up or turn up on their doorstep and mail letters to them. That is something that sends the red flag up as well. Um, you know, but in my eyes, it's just trying to, it's a better way to get answers is to go to the people who were 
involved in the original days, but for some reason, you know, when you start requesting addresses and phone numbers of all these retired military people, then that does sort of get the military's attention or the, you know, the, the intelligence world's attention as well. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, now, a lot of people want to know about uh, the history with NICAP and how, uh, how they sort of uh, folded as a result of uh, infighting and stuff, and how a lot of people seem to think that that was CIA-generated. How extensive do you think uh, the infiltration of UFO groups has been mm. over the years? And, and do you think it's still going on today, or, is, or, or are they sort of less worried about it? Right. Yeah, um, the, the NICAP organization, which, I mean, really was a big force, uh, particularly in the late 50s and through the mid-60s, um, you know, lobbying Congress to... Um, investigate what the Air Force was doing and, excuse me, if they were being legitimate and telling the truth or telling the full story. And why NICAP, um, under the directorship of Donald Kehoe, who was a former major in the Marine Corps, why it was such a force was because it actually had the backing and support of a lot of retired military people. And it was the, um, its actual name was the National Aerial, um, sorry, National Investigator National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, and it was sort of a, a countrywide organisation with chapters and groups overseas, and and was really doing some sort of groundbreaking work in terms of lobbying, as I said, government to you know get things done and try and get witnesses to uh, have immunity from prosecution if you, you know if they spoke out and broke military rules and so on. Um, so, you know, it really did sort of red flag itself with the government. Um, and what was interesting was that in sort of the early 60s onwards, a lot of retired or so-called retired CIA people began sort of gravitating towards NICAP. And, you know, along the lines of, oh, we're retired and we've always had an interest in this subject, you know, can we get involved with your organization? And more and more of these people seem to come on board and, you know, hold, hold high positions um, within the organization. And one of the theories that's been put forward is that this infiltration, if you like, wasn't as innocent as it, as it seemed, that it wasn't just, you know, retired people or even serving people with the CIA having an interest and just wanting to get more involved, that it was a case of this was an, an easy way, if you like, of of actually determining what NICAP was doing and having access to its files and you know, you've got somebody of, of high CIA rank on the board of directors and then that person, you know, obviously has access to all the case files and yeah. who knows, you know, what gets reported back to CIA headquarters. That was one of the, the main theories that's been circulating for decades and, and it is actually a fact that in the aftermath of, you know, this intense um, CIA attraction, if you like, to NICAP, but it... Um, eventually Donald Kehoe was ousted and the organization began to sort of collapse and eventually sort of languished into obscurity, which may have been, you know, the, the required need and result in effect that the government wanted all along, was to sort of diffuse the power from within of this organization. Um, and even though some people may say, well, where's the evidence? Um, if you look at declassified CIA files from the early 1950s from something called the Robertson Panel, the Robertson Panel um, was a, a CIA offshoot organization or sponsored group 
that looked into the national security issues of UFOs. And one of the recommendations in the officially declassified files is that a number of UFO groups that were sort of high profile and attracting a number of audiences should be watched. And that's, that's sort of um, laid out and spelled out very, very openly in the files. And one of these organizations was the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization based out of Tucson. Um, APRO it was called, and this is one of the one the groups that the, the CIA in particular recommended targeting as far back as, as 1953. So, you know, it isn't as, as strange or as paranoid as people might think. Um, and, you know, there are a number of other um, examples as well, um, you know, where organizations seem to have a high level of membership of military people or CIA or ex-intelligence personnel. And, you know, it's interesting that a subject like this should be the one where these people time and time again claim that, oh, you know, I'm now retired and, you know, I've always had an interest and can I come on board and I can offer, you know, good services to your organization, et cetera, et cetera. And then lo and behold, infighting starts and things like that happen and, you know, it just gets to the point where the group collapses and, you know, when that happens... A number of, on a number of occasions, then you begin to think this, or realize that there's a pattern at work, which is, you know, infiltrate, subvert, destroy. Um, and, and unfortunately, it works. Now, do you think, uh, so now, what you were describing, NICAP, sounds an awful lot like what's going on nowadays with this disclosure movement and exopolitical force that's sort of growing. Mm -hmm. It's not as uh, well organized yet as NICAP was, mm -hmm. but it seems to be getting there. That's... Do you think uh, that should be something they should be worried about is to sort of keep tabs on uh, who's joining up and who's, who's, you know, who might be making waves in a situation yeah. that's something they should watch out for? Yeah, I think, you know, anyone really, as I said, could have the potential to be watched because it depends how sensitive the, you know, the field that you're particularly looking into is. Um, but you're quite right that when it, be, when it comes to things like UFOs and, and politics and getting congressmen and senators involved and, you know, holding conferences in, in D.C. like some of the disclosure people did and, you know, having the mainstream press corps come along, yeah. then... Not only does that attract attention, but, you know, it, it's going to attract the, the attention of the people that don't want this material getting out there. And, you know, I think what happens is that people tend to fall into two categories. There are those like me that, you know, it's like, well, okay, if you've been watched, so be it. But that's not going to stop me doing what I'm doing. Because yeah. I think, you know, we have a right to know the answers. You know, I don't think that... A, a group of intelligence people 50 years ago have a right to dictate that the world shouldn't know that, you know, that UFOs exist. But I think on the other hand is that when you, there are other people that perhaps, you know, that might think, well, the government's watching me, I better back down, and they do back down. And, you know, I, I think when it comes to organizations like the Disclosure Project, as you said, they are high profile, you know, there's the, the political angles and uh, you know, there's no, I have no evidence, um, but there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, based on past trends, that they would be watched very, very closely. But I think what actually happens, and this is kind of an interesting sort of offshoot, is that often in these cases, government agencies don't stop the organizations doing what they're doing. It's actually better to, if you like, just watch them, and then that way they kind of get a handle on who's speaking to who, who they're in sources are, you know, if they close it down right away, then 
then they're not sure where the information is coming from, who the whistleblowers are, who's leaking material, etc. But if they just kind of watch it for a few years and see what's going on, then they could get a good input of, you know, the membership and the, the sources of information. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think that's sort of a, another area as well. It's, you know, the, the, the closed down issue only comes when they feel they've got all the information that they need and then it's, okay, let's let's just subvert, subvert this group to the point where, you know, everybody just throws in the, the towel, so to speak. Yeah, and plus I think uh, they probably, they probably also want to sort of infiltrate and then maybe change policy while, when, well, once they can get to the point of power. Yeah, well, that actually happened with, with NICAP is that um, Donald Kehoe, Major Donald Kehoe, was sort of a very, um, he was, you know, constantly barraging and attacking the Air Force to change their policy and, you know, he had numerous leads in the Pentagon and the Air Force who were actually quite sympathetic and who wanted the truth to, to come out. And that was the area that was of concern, was the fact that, you know, you've got this guy lobbying inside the contacts in the Pentagon and the Air Force to reveal their UFO files. And I think in the initial stages, the attack, if you like, from the CIA was sort of two-pronged, was one to find out who Keogh's sources were, and then the, the other one was then to try and close those sources down and really reduce NICAP's involvement in, you know, lobbying people and, and banging on the Air Force's door all the time. That is actually what happened, that it got to the point where, you know, eventually NICAP was just this organization that maintained these old filing cabinets of documents, and, you know, there weren't pe proactive people, if you like, anymore doing this really in-depth researches and, and studies that, you know, the media was getting involved in and picking up on. So, uh, you know, I think that's happened on, on a number of occasions with, with UFO groups and, and organizations. And um, now you touched on APRO a little bit. I've been, uh, I was at the X conference in D.C. last year and uh, mm -hmm. I saw Walt Andrews, he's the founder of MUFON. He, he really had a, just a wealth of information about, like, how the evolution of these groups. And uh, I've been fascinated since I heard his, his speech on with APRO and how it closed down and how now the files are like locked away and no yeah. one will let them. Do you know anything about that? Because I'm, I'm just so fascinated with them. I'm always trying to find out more about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about the background to the issue of why the files aren't available, but it is quite, what happened was that in the, NICAP was set up in the early 50s by uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen in Arizona. And it, again, APRO was a, a group with numerous uh, memberships and, you know, group chapters around the country and people who do research for them. And, I mean, they, they collated substantial, massive files. Um, and again, they were, you know, they were kind of like NICAP or the MUFON organization, yeah. you know, organizations like that. And the, both the Lorenzans actually died in the late 1980s and their files I'm not sure what happened or how it happened, but they, they were turned over to somebody else. And as you say, those files are now locked away and largely out of public access. Um, but I mean, a friend of mine, Greg Bishop uh, in California, who's a UFO author, he dug quite deeply into the APRO um, story because he had a number of friends who'd been linked with them. And, you know, it was quite, Greg uncovered a lot of information um, in his book, Project Beta. Um, concerning the monitoring of APRO and some of the players and, you know, the Air Force wanting to know details of APRO cases and had APRO uncovered details of this incident, if they had, what are they saying about it and who are they talking to? Yeah. Um, 
and I think it's interesting, you know, that if you look back at the CIA files, as I said, APRO was one of the organizations they recommended monitoring. So that, that would suggest, you know, that the Air Force and the CIA were colluding and sharing information that because you have both these organizations looking into this one same group. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think what happens is the higher the profile of the group, when they start putting out newsletters and magazines, then, you know, that really sort of tips the balance, particularly when you've got memberships of two, three, four thousand people. You know, the, I think the way the government looks at it, and a lot of people perhaps in the UFO field don't realize this, is that UFO groups are actually kind of looked at and perceived as like a protest group. Because if you think about it, even though I think we have a right to the answers, you know, we're, we're like a force of perhaps 4,000 people in one group that's trying to uncover details of government secrets. You know, and if that was another field, you know, if some, an organization was trying to uncover details of U.S. nuclear missile capabilities, which is sort of an equal, equal level secret, yeah. then they would be watched closely. So I think that's one of the reasons we are watched is because, you know, we're a force of thousands of people trying to uh, uncover and expose government secrecy and, you know, only a fool would imagine that people like that wouldn't be watched. Even though our motivations, I think, for the most part, are, are valid. You know, if, if aliens exist and UFOs exist, I think the public has a right to know and, you know, a few old generals 40 years ago shouldn't have made policy, which is still in place today, if you like. So. Yeah, and, and uh, like you allude to what the government... Uh how they worry about ufologists, and then back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, I'm sure, uh, that, they, that there was a communism thing, and they were worried yeah. that, that it was a subversive thing for communism. Um, do you know of any cases where uh, their suspicions were actually borne out, and it turned out that someone in the UFO field was actually working as a communist uh, sympathizer or someone who's, who's trying to help forward communism and not really a UFO researcher? You know, that's an interesting question. For the most part, um, I mean, there's no doubt, for example, I mean, we can come to this later, that there are occasions, particularly with, a, with our alien abductees, for example, where the government has outright monitored them purely because of the, the UFO angle. But, as you said, there are some cases, or a lot of cases, where it was perceived, like with George Adamski, that the, the UFO accounts, if you like, were a cover for spreading communism and things like this. Now, of all the cases that the, you know, the military and the Air Force and the intelligence community looked into, there's no actual real evidence that this was going on. It was just like government paranoia. Yeah. And, you know, it was more along the lines of the people themselves, the, the witnesses or the writers, were saying these things. And, and it just so transpired that there was like a political issues. However, the, you know, the government paranoia and concern that there was this undercurrent um, was never really borne out. The occasion where there was something along these lines borne out in England was the kind of a semi or actually very mysterious group called the Aerial Phenomena Inquiry Network was set up in the early 70s. This was a group called APEN. And APEN was an organization that would send letters out and correspondences and 
documents to UFO groups and researchers up and down Britain. And no one could ever actually determine who they were. The, the letters would be sent postmarked from all different places around the country, so there was no actual way to track them down. Um, and the letters contained references to secret UFO investigations and how this group supposedly had links with the governments and you know, was on the inside of government secrecy. And they said that all the British UFO groups had sort of closed down and apply their new allegiance to the Apron group. Yep. Um, one of the theories that was put forward was that Apron was actually like a shadow organization created by a government agency designed to sort of subvert and destroy the British UFO research community and then have everybody swarm to them under one banner so the government would be able to keep them under watch, if you like. Yeah. Um, which was an interesting theory. Um, one of the other theories was that um, possibly some of the people connected to APEN, and there was some evidence of this, were extreme right-wingers, like fascist organizations, yeah. and that they were trying to recruit people but to try and stay out of the government's radar by recruiting from within the UFO field, you know, rather than standing on the streets saying, join our organization, if you like. Um, and it, it was never actually really proven one way or the other. But, you know, both scenarios were quite plausible. I think this is this was one good example of where somebody ran a program, whether it was, you know, the government or some subversive group, to try and get people um, or to use the UFO subject and manipulate the UFO subject for some obscure reason um, relating, as I said, to, to politics. Um, but for the most part, it was, you know, the, the government's, it's just getting overly paranoid about the issue of, well, is this person sincere? You know, for the most part, it was just people wanting the truth about UFOs and uh, speaking to retired military people. But, you know, you go knocking on some retired major general's door and he tells the FBI, this guy's been there and asking questions, then they are going to look into it. And you can understand, yeah. even wrongly, why they might come to some of these conclusions. Um, but, it, but it is an interesting fact that, for the most part, it, it was just government paranoia. You know, it, it really wasn't sort of deep cover Soviet spying, uh, as far as we know. Um, you know, the, there may well be cases that will surface one day to show that, you know, that there are clear-cut examples of where somebody was in the employ of, you know, Russia or North Korea or China. You know, and I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. One of the big concerns was when the the whole Area 51 story broke out, you know, that crashed UFOs were supposedly stored there and dead aliens. Yeah. The, obviously, I mean, Area 51 exists, um, and they also do a lot of, you know, prototype aircraft testing there, weapons testing. Yeah. One of the concerns was that, you know, when you see these UFO researchers outside the base with high-powered cameras, you know, on the mountaintops five miles away, but they can still see the base, one of the concerns was that some of these people actually were paid um, Soviet spies in the U.S., and if, you know, if they were stopped, they would say, oh, we're just looking into these stories about the crashed UFOs, where in actual fact, you know, their cameras were focused on a particular hangar where, you know, the Soviets had learned that a new type of stealth aircraft was being developed or something like that. Um, that was a legitimate concern. Now, whether it was actually going on or just, you know, it was just the government, again, fearing that was going on, I think, you know, maybe it was sort of 50-50. But um, for the most part, as I said, it, it was never really sort of proven that 
you know, you did have all these subversives running around for, for China or Russia or whoever. Yeah. And, and uh, you think now, like nowadays, they just transfer the communist uh, threat to terrorism and it sort of can still have that mm -hmm. same level of paranoia. Yeah, I think, I think today, because the way the UFO subject is today, I think probably government agencies, it's, it's very easy for them to monitor pretty much everybody in the subject because of, of the, the medium and the way in which we, we all stay in touch, you know, it's through email, it's, it's so easy, you know, we've fallen into that trap of, you know, of, of talking to each other in the way that's the easiest way of monitoring it. Um, but what I think is that today is that it's perhaps the, the people who watch more closely are those who, as you say, are still, um, you know, knocking on the door of the intelligence community, trying to prize open government secrets. And, and again, there is evidence that, you know, the terrorist card has been a replacement for communism. I mean, one classic example um, is a guy in England, well, in Wales, actually, named Matthew Bevan. Matthew Bevan, in 1994, was like 17, 16, 17 years old, and he was, you know, he was a computer genius at that age. And he got interested in UFOs and Roswell and Area 51 and all these rumors about you know, dead alien bodies in frozen storage under the Pentagon or wherever. And he he took an approach, which I guess, you know, is one of the most unconventional approaches you could take. Instead of tracking down retired military people, etc., he, he literally hacked into numerous military and intelligence agencies in the U.S. from, you know, his mom and dad's spare bedroom in back yeah. in Cardiff, Wales at 16 years old. Kind of like that War Games film that was released um, back in the 80s. Yeah. And what Bevan did was to... He got into the computer systems at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, and Wright-Patterson is where all, pretty much all these rumors stem from about so-called Hangar 18 and crashed UFO materials and alien bodies held there. And he, you know, he was just a 16-year-old kid, and okay, he shouldn't have done what he did, but you know, he was just looking for UFO information, and he got into the system and actually found out, actually found something very interesting. He didn't find anything on crashed UFOs, but he found some files on very radical research that was being done into what, in simplistic terms, is, is deemed anti-gravity research. Yes. And uncovered information suggested that maybe some sort of prototype device or vehicle had actually been built and tested. Um, even if, you know, even if it wasn't at sort of full working stage. And, you know, he looked at the files, got out of the system, and, uh, you know, thought he'd got in and out undetected. But he was actually arrested uh, afterwards by um, the Computer Crime Unit of Scotland Yard, the British Police's Scotland Yard in London. He was questioned very vigorously, and did you hack into this system? Did you hack into that system? And Scotland Yard were very interested in determining if he'd... Um, uncovered anything or if he printed anything off on this anti-gravity material and he said he hadn't and they, you know, they kept questioning him time and time again. But it turned out that, I mean, they did things like look into his bank account until the age of 12 because this is what I'm coming to with, like, the terrorism card. Um, Scotland Yard and also working on the advice of, provided to them by U.S. intelligence were looking at the idea that Bevan had been hired um, by one example was North Korea, um, and that this was going to be some sort of like a preemptive thing where he, Bevan, would supply materials to the North Korean government, you know, and then it would perhaps possibly result in a terrorist attack. 
Um, also, they were looking to see if he'd been hired possibly by Middle Eastern groups or even the Chinese military intelligence, all sorts of organizations. And, um, and again, you can understand why you know, they would possibly think that, um, because at the, that particular time, rumors were flying around that the Chinese and the North Koreans were putting the word out to the hacking community that, you know, pay, we'll pay you good money um, to get into this system, if you like. Yeah. Uh, but Matthew, Matthew Bevan, he literally was just like a 16-year-old kid looking for UFO information, and okay, he kind of did it in a reckless way. Um, but, you know, the, as I said, the communist card was long gone by 94, 96 when he was arrested. And, and it was replaced by this fear that, you know, is he working with North Korea? Is it going to result, you know, is he trying to get information on our, our military communication systems? And is it possible, you know, someone could hack into it and clog the system? Or worse still, you know, close down the emergency communication systems on the day that some sort of attacks launched? Yeah. Um, and what actually happened was that the the military almost sort of kicked itself in the teeth because the the entire case against Matthew was dropped. Um, the, the prosecution just collapsed, and the reason the prosecution collapsed is because when it went to the court case, I mean everybody and his brother was uh, in, involved. There was the the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, Scotland Yard the British equivalent of the NSA, British equivalent of MI5, which is, uh, sorry, of the FBI, which is called MI5, um, two divisions of the US Air Force, and all had representatives um, oh, wow. involved in the court case in which Matthew was going to be prosecuted. But the judge said, um, it was words to the effect of, okay, Matthew admits to getting into these systems, and you want him prosecuting because he read this information and you're also claiming that he damaged some of the systems. Now, and the judge said, you know, well, let's see the evidence. You know, if it's like a murder case, you need to have evidence that a body's been, a person's been murdered. Yeah. Um, and so they said to, the judge said to the prosecution, which was U.S. and British intelligence, you know, let's see the files he got into and we can then determine if he accessed classified materials, etc., and let's see the damage he did to the files. And of course, because this revolved around secret anti-gravity research, um, and the judge would have to see this material, as would the defense, as would the jury, the U.S. intelligence said, no, this material is classified, we cannot show it to you, to the judge, I mean, he said that. Um, and the judge said, well, you know, if you can't present the evidence, how can we prosecute the guy? Yeah. Um, and so that's why the court case collapsed. And that, that actually, there's another guy who's on trial, well, actually he's not at the trial stage yet in England, named Gary McKinnon. Mm -hmm. And he did something very similar a couple of years ago. And the U.S. government is trying to get him extradited to the States, have him tried in, in the U.S. court system. But again, the problem is that to have someone prosecuted, you've got to supply the evidence. And again, the big question that's circulating now is whether or not the government would be prepared to show the judge the files that McKinnon got into. Uh, because, again, he said he saw files that related to something called non-terrestrial officers. Um, and he came to the conclusion that the, the U.S. had got some sort of classified space program going on beyond, you know, the space shuttle or something like that. Yeah. that it was running in tandem with it, but it was far in advance of it. Um, and, again, you know... It, I think one of the concerns with him was, well, why is he doing it? Is he working for somebody else? And, um, but again, the, you know, the, 
the issue is that it's obviously communism has been replaced by you know these little um, rogue nations, you know, like North Korea and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, now you kind of talk about how the the, the evolution of uh, of surveillance, and I was wondering, is there a lot of uh, men in black sightings today, or do you think that that was more of a 50s, 60s phenomenon, and uh, because of the reliance on human intelligence? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's probably a combination of things. I mean, you know, some of your listeners may think when we talk about the Men in Black, you know, it's just the the Tommy Lee Jones, Will Smith movie. Um, what people may not realise, or I'm sure a lot of your listeners will, um, is that the the movie itself was actually based on existing reports of, of MIB-type phenomenon that have gone back decades. And the first person who really... Um, gave any, not so much creeds, but gave it profile and, and got it out into the public domain, uh, was a guy named Albert Bender. Albert Bender was a UFO researcher in the States who ran this organization in the early 50s and was actually digging very deeply into the UFO subject and said he'd had this visit from these guys in black suits and black hats, you know, kind of like these, dressed like these 1950s gangster, pulp detective types films, yeah, gumshoe detectives dressed like that, um, and they basically told him that, yes, he'd uncovered the truth, but, you know, he mustn't talk about it, and Bender actually did kind of freak out and got very paranoid and dropped his research completely, which was probably the desired effect. Yeah. Now, in the years that followed, particularly the 50s, the 60s, and into the 70s, there were numerous reports of, you know, guys in black suits, neckties, sunglasses, pulled down hats, you know, and black cars even, turning up on the doorstep of UFO witnesses and authors and investigators and saying, you know, if you keep on with your investigations, you're going to die and your family's going to die and everybody's going to yeah. die. Um, and in some cases, you know, the people freaked out and, and did just drop everything overnight. In other cases, um, it kind of spurred them on more. Now, what is really interesting is that there are actually two divisions, if you like, or two versions of the men in black. One, it's quite clear that some of these people were, which we can prove this because some of the files have been declassified, were Air Force and military intelligence people going around trying to collect information on UFO sightings, but by doing it in civilian gear and clothing so that the person they were speaking to wouldn't know where they were coming from. Yeah. You know, there'd be no way to trace the, the paper trail, if you like. Mm -hmm. But at the same time as these military guys going around in black suits, you also had some far weirder MIBs where some people actually thought, you know, they were human-like aliens in disguise. Um, also trying to put off, um, you know, people from investigating these things. And one of the most interesting theories that was put forward was that the government knew that there were real men in black out there, but the government didn't know who they were from or, you know, even if they were alien. Yeah. But the government realized that this was something they could exploit for themselves, and they started coming out with their own men in black, um, you know, as a means of camouflage. Um, you know, you just turn on someone's doorstep in a black suit rather than your, your Air Force uniform. You don't show ID, you threaten the person. Well, then that person's got no way of complaining to a particular agency that, you know, how dare you send General so-and-so out yeah. to, to grill me and so on. Um, so, you know, that is one of the, the more intriguing aspects is that there's the government originated MIB, so trying to silence UFO researchers, and there's these far weirder MIBs who have 
are still unknown agenda. And, and in some of these other cases, um, you know, people reported how these people look very, very oriental in appearance. Some of them even bizarrely look like they've got makeup on a lipstick to make their skin look more human coloured, like pink coloured. Yeah. You know, and they didn't seem to have a full understanding of our customs and beliefs and you know, they spoke in strange ways. Um, you know, as if they were some sort of, as bizarre as it sounds, like some sort of alien. Yeah. Trying to infiltrate our society that would look a bit like us and, you know, need to kind of change their appearance a little bit to, to get by on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, now, as I mentioned, I'm talking about files and the MIBs, one of the most interesting cases for me, at least, that I looked into was that of a woman in the early 60s in England who'd had a UFO encounter um, where she'd seen this weird ball of light hovering outside her bedroom window on, on several occasions and she reported it to a local Air Force base and forgot about it but some weeks later a guy turned up on her doorstep again in the classic black suit, black tie and even in an old black car um, and she, he said, I'm here to investigate your UFO sighting and you know, she let the guy in and he the, the, the basic thrust of the story is he told her there was nothing to it. He told her not to talk about the incident and actually confiscated some pencil notes and compass drawings that she'd made of the object and its movements. And, you know, this is classic, this is like a classic MIB encounter, you know, where the person gets warned and any material evidence is confiscated. Yeah. What set this case apart was that she remembered the name of the Air Force Base she reported the incident to. And so what I did, I went to the British equivalent of the American National Archives and, and checked around to see if any files from that period at that base had been declassified. And sure enough, I found an, a large number of files and, and actually contained within that file was the official investigative report which showed that the, the local Air Force base had indeed sent somebody out, but had specifically done so, you know, in a covert fashion, no uniform, no ID, don't identify yourself, etc., etc. Um, and it turned out that this guy was attached to an organisation called the Provost and Security Services, and this is a division of the Air Force, the British Air Force, which is specifically trained in espionage and counterintelligence issues. So they're, they're kind of like the James Bonds of the Air Force. Um, and so this is this was a clear example of you know that some of these MIBs we can track down to you know the, the spying world if you like. Yeah. Um, but it, it is true what you said um, when you posed the question that most of the MIB reports, although we still get them today, there's they're far less in number. And I think the reason for that probably is because, as you said, the the means and the technology to gather intelligence information has, has changed so much. You know, there are, for example, devices, you know, where you can literally point them at a person's house and actually, you know, they'll pick up on the conversation. That's not, you know, it's not science fiction, that's science fact. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's everything from telephone monitoring, email monitoring, um, outside surveillance, all sorts of means to where, you know, in some respects, the days of... Um, the MIB turning up on the doorstep were long gone. But as we discussed earlier, I think that does happen, but it's probably done more to spook the person, you know, the same with the noises on the telephone. Yeah. It's just done to say, hey, you know, we're watching you and make sure the guy has a, like a sleepless night or whatever. <laughs> um, now, in the book, uh, when you were talking about Ape, you also referenced uh, something that I'd never heard of. Is it Mumo? 
Oh, oh no. Yeah, M U M M O. Yeah. Um, that must have been before my time. What's the story with with um, Mumo and yeah. Mumo? Well, actually, exactly before my time as well. I think I was ah. probably still being pushed around in a a little baby car when that first surfaced. But um, what it was, again, this is a little bit like APEN um, in the sense that it was an organisation predominantly began in Europe and South America, and it was similar to APEN in the sense that letters were being sent out by this group all around these particular areas, Europe, Spain, South America, um, from this organization, UMO, which supposedly was taken from, allegedly, um, some planet where a visiting alien species were from. And there was a lot of discussion about politics and you know, their, type, their lifestyle and reasons for coming here, etc., etc. Yeah. And again, the, but in this case, the implication was, wasn't that it was a UFO group. Uh, the implication was it was actually some sort of human-like alien force on Earth that was sending the material out itself um, to try and get across in a covert fashion who they were and what they were doing. Yeah. Um, now, no, it's, some people have suggested that the whole thing was like a psychological hoax by to see how people respond to hoaxes and how rumors spread. Other people to this day still feel that you know the UMO group were like a small pocket of alien visitors who were actually, instead of, you know, landing on the White House lawn, were actually using a far more covert and down-to-earth method of contacting people and literally using the mail system, which, you know, it sounds bizarre, but on the other hand, I guess, if you don't want to be found out, it's an ideal way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but one of the other theories was that it may have been a hoax and then that the KGB picked up on it and used it as like a means of started sending out their own apron letters, sorry, their own homo letters, as a way and means of seeing who in the UFO community was speaking to who and on what subjects. And you know, so again, it's it's kind of like which which came first, you know, the the homo letters, the anonymous ones, or did the KGB pick up on it first and then somebody else picks up on it? Yeah. But it's it is an interesting and strange story of anonymous letters being sent out with alleged alien uh, origins and then you find that the KGB are getting into it and you know so I, I think this is this is something that happens back and forth that you have UFO encounters and then the intelligence community tries to exploit it and then even the intelligence guys find like with the MIBs that there are other MIBs or other intelligences out there that they're not aware of and you know even they're thinking well is there another group yeah, we don't know about yeah. in the Pentagon or whoever that's at a deeper level investigating things. And I actually think that does happen, that, you know, people imagine that, for example, when all this spying is going on, that it's all coordinated by one top group. And it may be, but on the other hand, I think, you know, there are verifiable examples of where Group A in the Pentagon doesn't necessarily want to share information with the, the CIA or the FBI. You know, it's got its own investigations for investigating this person, on reasons for investigating this or that person, and it doesn't want, you know, its sister organization, if you like, to know for, for whatever reasons. And yeah. Then it turns out they run into each other spying on the guy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and then that sort of kind of goes to what uh, another question I had here about... Uh, in the book, you have a story about an alien who broke into a government office in, in England, uh, Frimley, England, which was where the yeah. town was. Um, could you get into that story a little bit? Because that was really weird. 
Yes, yeah, that is a weird story. This, as you said, this originated in a town in England called Frimley, and I interviewed a woman a few years ago um, when I was living back in England, and she'd worked for Marconi. Uh, Marconi, um, it's a defence contractor that does all sorts of work for the, the Navy and the Air Force, you know, creating uh, defence technologies, munitions, uh, things like, and applications for new technologies, and she. Um, related this account to me about how in uh, 1974 something weird had gone on at this particular Marconi location in Frimley. And the story was that late at night a security guard who was just on his normal patrol route um, was doing rounds at the base and there was some sort of disturbance in one particular room. And when the guy opened the door, um, right in front of him was this sort of alien creature literally sort of looming over a filing cabinet full of top secret materials and documents <laughs> uh, who, who according to the story you know literally sort of vanished in a blink of an eye um, and the story was that the security guard was debriefed and you know there, were, there, was, there was actually kind of like a, a little bit of a sinister angle in the sense that he was debriefed and may have had a breakdown and then vanished in some I don't mean literally vanished but I mean um, you know, he was either retired or, or something happened to him. But although it's a bizarre story, I mean, what I always do, you know, is, is do background checks. And there's, there's no doubt that the woman I interviewed, you know, held this position of high responsibility at this Marconi installation. Um, and as I point out in the book, um, although it sounds like something straight out of science fiction, declassified, for example, Defense Intelligence Agency files actually show that in this same time period, this was when a lot of the research was beginning into things like remote viewing and psychic spying, you know, with the military, you know, employing psychics to spy on the enemy. And there's actually a document that was produced, I think, the year before this Frimley event occurred, where, you know, the DIA was saying that it may well be possible that seven, eight years from now that we can train psychics to almost like dispatch their souls, you know, to the Kremlin, if you like, and, yeah. and spy on the top secret files of the Kremlin without having to physically penetrate the organization. And, you know, if the, the DIA were doing that in the 70s, then who knows if somebody got 200 years in front of us, if you like, may have already done that. And, and this may be what this was related to. I mean, one thing I would say is that since the book's published, actually, somebody did write to me and suggested, well, you know, if the DIA were doing this in the early 70s, is it possible the Russians were already doing it? And that maybe that you know this was an example of like a Russian remote viewing uh, type thing, you know, where they actually succeed in doing that, which which isn't impossible, you know. There's no reason it has to be alien. That was just the reason or the conclusion that was um, reached. But you know, there is a lot of evidence of. Um, Several other cases, I mean, you know, I could have actually included several others in the book, but it would have got a little bit repetitive. But there are a number of cases on record like that where weird creatures, human-like aliens, have reportedly been seen in military bases, and particularly atomic energy installations as well. And, you know, some of the guards gone towards them, they've just vanished in the blink of an eye. Oh, weird. Um, and it is weird, you know, but the interesting thing is that a lot of these reports are sort of spread across the decades, and from all around the world, you know, from the 50s to the 90s, one in America, one in Germany, one in England. Um, so some, you know, somebody's, if you like, turned the tables, as I said in the book, on the, on the source of spies, you know, it's not just the government spying, it's almost like 
they're being spied on as well by whatever these things are. Yeah. Um, and in the book, one of the uh, major characters, I guess, would be a, a major source for you for your research, and um, would be uh, this, this guy you call the Sandman. Yeah. What happened was that you know, for, from where possible, and for the most part, I've been fortunate that in pretty all my pretty all my books, in uh, pretty much all of them, everybody's spoken on the record. Um, you know, which is good in terms of verification. Yeah. You know, tracking down information. Just occasionally, like you know, all UFO researchers, events. Sometimes you come across someone who's willing to speak to you, but you know, if they're on a military pension or you know they've got a CIA pension or whatever, they don't necessarily want to speak on the record. But they can provide information, which if you look into it and it seems good, suggests you know that they're genuine. They're the genuine article. They're not some sort of intelligence plant to deceive you. Yeah. And this guy who I in the book called the Sandman. Um, he worked for the uh, division of the British Police Force called Special Branch, and Special Branch is like an intelligence division of the police. They, you know, they get involved in, you know, not like car crime or bank robberies, but they get involved in um, terrorist threats against the UK, or you know, um, penetrations by major criminal groups, encrypted uh, yeah. the mafia and things like that. Um, and he related this account to me um, about how Special Branch had been monitoring a wealth of UFO researchers, actually including me, um, in England, and that this began, well actually it didn't begin in the 70s, he, his involvement began in the mid-1970s, and then he was brought back into the fold in the 90s. Um, he actually retired from Special Branch by then, but he got a, his own private security company, which you know a lot of these ex-police guys do. They set up, particularly in England, you know, they retire and they set up a private company staffed by their own ex-colleagues from you know, the police force and so on. Yeah. Um, but the story was basically that he'd been involved from the 70s through the 90s, monitoring a lot of high-profile people within the British UFO research community, along with as he described it to me, uh, somewhere in the region of about 20 other people who were involved. Um, again, it wasn't just Special Branch, it was the British equivalent of the NSA, which is called the Government Communications Headquarters, Scotland Yard, the British version of the FBI, which is MI5, all kind of, again, very similar scenario to the, to the United States, of travelling around to conferences, monitoring telephones, um, just keeping tabs on, you know, what was being said in the magazines and the books and you know, just really watching what was going on. As I said, he got involved actually in this APEN organization that we, we discussed earlier and, and one of the things that he was looking into was whether or not some sort of ultra-right-wing group was exploiting the UFO subject as a means of recruiting people to some sort of really extreme right-wing organization, you know, that would sort of um, be involved with you know, major crimes on British soil. Um, and again, it was one of these things that was sort of never really resolved. But interestingly enough, in, interestingly enough in the same way with the UMO group, where the KGB may have infiltrated it, he actually said that Special Branch began sending out its own apron letters, um, reinforcing this ultra-right-wing angle to try and make the people that being the recipients of the letters, um, make them realize that this group was, you know, to be kept away from at all costs. You know, they were sort of extreme right-wing lunatics. They actually worked and kind of diffused the power of this organization. And, and he said that after this particular experience that 
he wasn't really involved in, in much else, if anything else really, until he was brought back into the fold in the in the 1990s. And why there was such a, a change in the 1990s, if you like, was because in England up until that point, although the UFO subject, you know, it had its following, it was pretty much an underground type thing with, you know, a few thousand people dotted around the country and different groups who would send out newsletters and, you know, there'd be the occasional conference where maybe 100, 150 people would attend. But in the 1990s, particularly when things like the X-Files became popular in England, um, the, the profile, if you like, of the UFO subject actually sort of soared through the roof. It became huge. Oh, really? And, yeah. And, I mean, around about 95, 96, you had somewhere in the region about nine or ten newsstand magazines on UFOs and some of, them, some of them were actually selling nowhere of a life somewhere like fifty to sixty thousand copies a month wow um, now if you imagine you know a situation where you've got sixty thousand people just subscribing to this magazine and sixty thousand to that magazine obviously there's going to be some crossover with the readerships yeah but you know this is a huge number of people and you know Graham Birdsall, the, the late editor of UFO magazine, he used to hold a yearly conference. Um, in the 80s, you know, there'd be 50, 100 people there. By 96, 97, they were getting 1,000 people a day at their conference. Um, so what happened was this, this investigative field, if you like, that began as, you know, like a quaint little group of people in jolly old England um, was sort of mutated into tens and tens of thousands of people all actively researching and investigating and you know, learning about the subject. And people like me and Matthew Bevan, um, another friend of mine, Matthew Williams, uh, who was a researcher we can talk about as well, yeah. and another guy, Robin Cole, were actually all these, these sort of the hardcore researchers who were really delving into government secrecy and tracking military people down. And the, the Sandman guy from Special Branch said that it was us predominantly and a few others that were watched very, very closely because we weren't just sort of, you know, logging night lights in the sky reports. We were actually going out and, you know, sort of in some cases tracking down, as I said, um, retired military people or spending days and weeks even at National Archives and, you know, trying to prize government documents open. And, and we were all friends with each other. We all knew each other. And, you know, there was this concern, well, who are they? Has someone hired them, you know, to uh, to do research on behalf of some hostile nation or whatever? And again, it was, that was just pure paranoia. We were just looking for the UFO stuff. But, um, I mean, Matthew Williams, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Matthew um, is a friend of mine uh, from South Wales who now lives in the south of England and Matthew's main target of investigation was a place called RAF Rudlow Manor, Royal Air Force Rudlow Manor, which is a, a military base in the south of England and the area where the base exists um, was actually quarried out years and years ago to build the nearby city of Bath. They used this particular stone taken from the area to construct the city. And, of course, when you construct a city out of, you know, you take the stone from one area, the, the area itself was left with these huge caverns and tunnels below it, um, you know, where the stone was taken from. Yeah. And, of course, the government realized, because many of these tunnels and caverns extended two or 300 feet underground where the miners had quarried it out, that this would be an ideal location, you know, in the event of like a nuclear attack, it would be good to have some sort of emergency government management down there. 
um, you know, the royal family and everybody else would be taken there. Well, yeah. the good people of England would be left to fry above. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what happened was that um, you had Rudlow Banner built on these huge caverns and tunnels, and throughout the years, rumours have surfaced primarily, interestingly enough, from retired military people that beneath Rudlow Manor supposedly there were stored a number of crashed UFOs and alien bodies and things like this. Kind of like, you know, similar to an Area 51 yeah. scenario in, in the States. And Matthew was probably the one person who um, delved deeper into this than anybody else. And, you know, he would literally go down to the base and even manage to find some of the old um, records which gave the tunnel access points and things like this. And on one occasion actually managed to get into the tunneling system himself. Um, you know, so you had this guy sort of walking around with his flashlights. Um, in, in some cases, some of the tunnels were closed down. In other cases, they weren't. But, you know, literally walking around in some of the government's most secret underground bases and yeah. avoiding uh, detection by the security guards, he literally did get in and out um, of the base on one occasion. And, I mean, he fully admits, you know, he didn't find any the smoking gun evidence, if you like. But, you know, the fact that he, he was doing these investigations in an unconventional way and had actually penetrated, you know, this huge maze of underground tunnels where the military were storing all sorts of weird things, um, inevitably attracted attention on the part of the government. And the fact that, you know, I was doing all these sorts of um, investigations, speaking to the military, and Matthew was a friend of mine, and he was also a friend of Matthew Bevan. And both me and Matthew Williams are friends with a guy named Robin Cole. And Robin Cole was a researcher in the city of Cheltenham, which is home to GCHQ, this British equivalent of the NSA. Yeah. And he, Robin actually wrote a report um, about the GCHQ's involvement in UFO investigations. And shortly after he was published, he was interviewed by a local TV channel. And the following day, um, actually, he had a telephone call from Special Branch saying, Mr. Cold, um, this is Detective Sergeant Tim Camp from Cheltenham Special Branch. Can we come round and interview you? And as Robin said, you know, it's not every day you get a phone call from yeah. Special Branch. Um, and so he said, well, yes, you know, I've got the day off work or something like that. Yeah, come round. Yeah. Um, and the, what Special Branch did, they actually made the mistake, of course, of alerting him beforehand that they were on the way. Yeah. You know, if they just turned up on the doorstep, it would just, they'd have just you know, made their way into the house, I suppose. But because he had sort of 10, 15 minutes before they arrived, he set up a, a tape recorder on top of his dressing table or something, or behind a lamp. And so when they came in, he was able to tape record the entire conversation, which I've listened to. And the, the special branch, two special branch detectives came out, sat down and said, you know, why are you doing these investigations? Why are you looking into GCHQ? Why are you wandering around the base taking pictures? Why are you speaking to this guy, Matthew Williams? Um, and Robin said, honestly, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the UFO link. I've heard rumors that GCHQ does UFO investigations and I share some of these findings with Matthew. Um, and the, the tape, as I said, makes it very clear that those of us in the UFO subject were being watched by Special Branch, and partly it was because, we, ironically, you know, it actually added weight in some ways, was the fact that we were all friends and knew each other. Um, and there was also the fact that, you know, we were looking into some areas where there was a spillover with national security issues yeah. beyond just UFOs. 
Um, and the Sandman, um, this guy who worked for Special Branch, related to about how files were put together on you know, most of the players within the British UFO community when things did take off in the mid to late 1990s. Um, you know, just trying to determine again, have these guys been hired by some you know, subversive group or whatever. But again, you know, there honestly wasn't anything to that. But you could, if you look at his testimony, what he said, you could understand why the government might come to that conclusion. Um, but, you know, the, the reality of it was we were just, all of us, you know, none of us really, apart from Robin, had nine to five jobs. We all rode for a living. So we were able to kind of, you know, do things at our own. Yeah leisure and travel around wherever we wanted to and I think that's and whenever we wanted to you know so I think that's what kind of prompted a lot of the attention in the UK and he, and he related to I mean as I said you know the way the surveillance was done how it was done how long it went on for but his his main concern was that because there were you know there were so many people involved that he he was comfortable about speaking about it but didn't want to speak really on the record uh, but there was one little indication, as I mentioned towards the end of the book, that he had kind of like semi-official permission to relate this account because he said that although the government came to the conclusion that, you know, there were no real hirings of people by Chinese military intelligence or whoever, he said that if it ever happened or if somebody was likely to do this, then to put the message out that these UFO researchers are being watched yeah. would discourage someone from trying to hire people in the field from doing that. Yeah. So it was kind of like he had like a semi-official mandate to sort of reveal some of the story anyway. So. And uh, you were saying like 10 years ago there was a big boom uh, for ufology in the UK. Is that sort of dying out now naturally or...? Yeah, what happened was, and again this actually relates to the surveillance and something the Sandman said, was that in, it was roughly round about 94 to 99 that things were really at the height in England. And, you know, you had all these magazines, books, people, you know, running around the country doing investigations. And it was, it was like a big thing. Um, then, you know, interests booms and trickles, you know, in all yeah. sorts of fields, whatever it is. And that's what happened is that a number of the magazines went out of print, just folded up. Um, groups around the country began to close down and it did go back to the situation in the 70s and 80s where it was, you know, a hardcore of a couple of hundred people just having occasional meetings with maybe 20 or 30 people every month in attendance. And unfortunately this coincided also with Graham Birdsell, the editor of the UFO magazine, dying at an unfortunately very early age. And so that, and then a couple of months later, that magazine, which was the biggest magazine, the most influential one, that closed down. So the situation now, and sort of post about 2001, 2002-03, is very different to how it was in the 90s. And the the indication I got from the Sandman was that the the large scale surveillance of people in the British UFO community has gone, and it's kind of been replaced by if you like, casual monitoring of the entire community, yeah. but the, the large-scale in-depth surveillance only occurs in specific people or even specific cases, you know, where there's a highly sensitive case, then they'll watch the people looking at that case, but it's not, it's not today, I don't think, the situation where, you know, everybody's been intensely monitored just because, you know, they investigate every light in the sky report. I think it's, it's dependence on specific individual cases or people. Yeah. Um, now, 
Uh, like ufology was sort of like born in America in a sense, because uh, that, like in general, really. Um, and and you cut your teeth in the UK um, ufology scene, but obviously you know all about the American ufology scene. What would you say are the similarities and the differences in general between the two countries? Um, uh, you mean you mean as far as UFO research? Is yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, that's a good question, actually. Um, I think. The biggest similarity is obviously, you know, we're all trying to get the answers and, you know, I think in that respect we tend to follow the same paths, which is, you know, hopefully rigorous investigations and interviews with witnesses and collating reports and sharing materials and, you know, hopefully doing it with a level head and, you know, doing every, trying to uncover every angle of the case. And, yeah. You know, that's reflected in the same way in terms of magazines being put out and books being put out just to sort of share the information. Um, I think, so in that respect, most things are the same. I think the one biggest difference might be that in England that you do have, or you have had a lot more of these unconventional approaches to research like, you know, Matthew, you know, whether you support them or not, you know, Matthew Bevan's of hacking into computer systems or Matthew Williams, you know, getting into underground military bases, that sort of thing. You know, I think in the States, if you were to do that, you'd probably have your head blown off before you got over the fence, yeah. <laughs> uh, particularly in today's world. Yeah. You know, in England, it's kind of a little bit, uh, a bit more quaint, I think, in that respect, and they just kind of perceive it as, oh, God, it's another of these UFO researchers, you know, trying to uncover information. And I think that's, I think that's the, the biggest difference I've seen is maybe the... In England, on occasion, investigations have been undertaken at a more unconventional level. But I think for the most part, you know, there actually aren't that many differences. You know, it's, it's just a case of just applying your common sense to just getting the facts down and just chasing every lead, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, um, American ufology sort of has a rich history because now it goes back all the way to 47. How, how far back would you say the UFO research in the UK uh, goes? About that yeah. time or did it start up later on? Well, actually, you know, it started before the... Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will have heard of the, um, the Foo Fighters, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is actually where the, the band the Foo Fighters gets their name from as well. Yeah. Um, the, the Foo Fighters were these weird balls of light that were seen particularly over Europe and the, and the Pacific when the Second World War was going on. And German pilots would see these things. They were like balls of light anywhere from the size of a tennis ball to like a, a basketball and, or slightly bigger. And when the, the German pilots or the Japanese pilots you know, were, were flying to the attack, if you like, these balls of light would zoom in and they seem to be under some sort of intelligent control because they'd close in on the aircraft and then zoom away at the last second to avoid collision. Um, and at the same time that the Japanese and the Germans were seeing these and thinking that they were an American or a British secret weapon, the Americans and the British were seeing them and thinking that they were German or a Japanese secret weapon. Um, and so both organizers, or both countries, or all four nations, I should say, um, began launching their own investigations. And uh, a friend of mine, or two friends of mine in England, Dave Clark and Andy Roberts, they actually found the, the wartime Royal Air Force files of um, investigations of the Foo Fighters. And they, they found somewhere in the region about 100 pages of material where three years before Kenneth Arnold's sighting that, you know, gave birth to the flying saucer, that the British government had this little 
not so much a project, but they had people um, investigating these weird balls of light. Um, and some of the reports uh, called them light phenomena one, light phenomena two. Another report refers to them as chandeliers. And, but uh, it's quite clear that what they were investigating were what today we call the Foo Fighters. Yeah. Um, so this was 44. Now the earliest report that I actually found with, uh, from England dated from 1913, which is oh, wow. kind of incredible. Um, this related to an area of the southwest of England called Dartmoor. And Dartmoor is where Conan Doyle's um, Sherlock Holmes novel, The Hand of the Baskervilles, was set. So it's kind of like this rolling moorland, you know, it's foggy and spooky and, you know, like something out of an old horror film. Yeah. Um, and on a number of occasions in 1913, these weird balls of light, actually a lot bigger than the Foo Fighters, had been seen traveling across the countryside late at night and in many cases actually following the same paths night after night. And, you know, bear in mind that, you know, there was no real big military at that time in England. There was no air force or anything like that. You know, the aircraft were only just in development anyway. And so a detachment of the, the Royal Navy at Plymouth, which was a nearby city, was sent out and they staked the Moorlands out at night. You know, night after night just camping out trying to see these things. And eventually several of the, the personnel did and they wrote these official reports which have now been declassified and you know the reports talk about how um, one guy Lieutenant Drury his name was and he'd gone out there and I think on the third night of you know being camped out on the freezing cold moors he'd seen these lights um, you know just traveling slowly across the sky and seemed to be following the same paths night after night and again that it was never really resolved um, but this became known as the, the Dartmoor Unknown Light. Um, and again, you know, it's sort of like a classic early description of a UFO, I suppose. So, yeah. you know, considering that reports went back to 1913 and, and were investigated officially, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if one day reports surfaced, you know, even before that. Yeah. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all. But one of the, the most interesting reports that surfaced in England, which, again, Dave Clark and Andy Roberts found when they were doing the Foo Fighter investigations, was a report from 1943 where a British bomber crew had reported seeing um, some sort of object, which was, which was a huge object. It was described as literally being several hundred feet in long, uh, several hundred feet in length, and shaped like, a, like an elongated cigar. Um, you know, this was a huge thing, and there was no way anybody, you know, was the, us, the Americans, the, the Germans, the Japanese, no one was flying, you know, objects 300 feet in length um, that could travel at like 500 mile an hour, as the report says, um, you know, and have like a fuselage shape with no wings attached. Yeah. You know, that nobody was flying anything like that. And, and this was a sort of a genuinely weird report. And what makes it more interesting is that in the 50s particularly, you had a lot of people who talked about UFOs um, of one particular type that became known as the motherships. And, you know, these were described as like huge cigar-shaped objects that supposedly orbited the Earth from which the smaller flying saucers would come down from. Um, you know, there are lots of rooms that the Air Force had high-powered radar tracking systems that would go to, you know, could track near-Earth orbit, and they were tracking these huge, tri uh, these huge cigar-shaped motherships in, in orbit. 
but as I said, what's interesting is that 10 years previously, we've now got official documents from the Royal Air Force showing that these things were actually being seen and you know reported by by trained pilots. So there's a lot of sort of pre-47 UFO reports, um, you know, that predate the the beginning of the flying saucer era, if you like. Yeah, and, and would you say ufology in the UK sort of has evolved along the same lines as American ufology? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's pretty much identical in the sense that, you know, after 47, you got reports from the public, the police, the military, in the same way that you do over here. Yeah. And groups sprang up in exactly the same way, and in the same way that, you know, you have magazines put out in the yeah. 40s, 50s, 60s in the US, exactly the same thing happened in England with magazines like Flying Saucer Reviews, probably the, the best example, which has been going for 50 years, I think, now, oh, something wow. like that. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. I want to thank Nick Redfern for sitting down and talking to us for so long. You can find more information on Nick at his website, www.nickredfern.com. That's N-I-C-K-R-E-D-F-E-R-N.com. That's his website. Check it out. You can find out more information about Nick Redfern there. You can find out information about how to pick up On the Trail of Saucer Spies, or any of his previous books. So check that out if you want more information about Nick Redfern. He'll be back next week on Banal of America Audio, where we'll discuss more about On the Trail of the Saucer Spies. We're going to touch on his other most recent book, Body Snatchers in the Desert. It caused quite a furor in ufology. We're going to talk to him about that post-publication furor. We're also going to talk about Serpo, cryptozoology, more about UK ufology. So check that out next week on Banal of America Audio. I want to thank Leslie and Chiron and R. Lee of BenallofAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and with the website, especially over the last month or so while we've been hard at work rounding up the interviews. Those guys have helped me tremendously. I can't thank them enough. Um, they've been just an amazing support structure, and without them, BenallofAmerica.com and America Audio really would not be able to get out to the masses as well as we do. I want to thank all you great listeners out there, the folks that have been with us since the very beginning, the folks who found us along the way, and the folks who are just listening now for the very first time to the show. Thank you very much. Stick around. The best is yet to come. We've got huge names in the pipeline for the final cycle of Banal of America Audio Season 1. If you're a longtime fan of Banal of America Audio and you want to help the audio series grow and evolve, Click the PayPal button, make a donation, throw some change in the bucket, help us develop further avenues for the Banal of America brand. We're always looking for future adventures, and you always need some capital for those adventures and also to offset the costs of what we're doing right now. So if you can help support the show, the series, the website, and the whole shebang, click the PayPal button. I'd appreciate it. I know the gang at BanalofAmerica.com would appreciate it. But either way, thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back next week. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim Banal signing off. <laughs>